You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. How are you doing? And welcome to the August edition of Ask Strong Towns. We're making a little small talk right now as folks sort of... I realized that I wore my obnoxious red. (laughs) I was so proud of my baseball team, see? Yeah. Uh, That, you know, I got up today and I'm like, we hit a walk-off home run last night against the Atlanta Braves, another really good team. And uh, I was just feeling really good about it. So when I reached into the closet today, I'm like, collared shirt. I'm going with the twins one. And then I got here and I'm like, this is really obnoxious for a, a web broadcast. I'll forgive you a fashion faux pas. Because Thank you. <laughs> knowledge on people and they're all excited. So for those of you who have done uh, Astron Counts before, you know the drill. For those of you who are new, I'll give you kind of the lowdown. First, I'm Kia. This is Chuck, if you haven't met us before. I got a new haircut. I don't blame you if you don't recognize me. You look fantastic. <laughs> but uh, the basic gist is we are here to ask, answer your questions about how to make your town stronger, what the Strong Towns approach is all about, anything that you feel like we haven't reached through our content. Um, you can always search back through thousands of articles on archive. Here's a place to ask it. Um, the logistics of how that work are, works are pretty simple. I have a few pre-submitted questions to kind of get us started off. Um, if you would like to ask a question live, there's a little button at the bottom of your screen that says Q and A. That's the one you want, not the one that says chat. The one that says chat is for you to talk about how good my new haircut is, to talk about how annoying Chuck's red shirt is, and to talk about basically anything in between one another. If we mention an article during the podcast or the webcast, excuse me, I'm on video, um, we will probably post it there, that kind of a thing. But go ahead and get those questions started, and I can kick us off if you're ready, Chuck. Let's do it. Do it. Okay. I want to start us with a hard one. Oh, um, gosh. Nathan from Amherst, Massachusetts, and it's one that I'm like, I don't know the answer to this. Um, I see more news articles and government publications about the unaffordable housing crisis where housing prices are increasing much faster than the median income every single day. What do you think is the cause in this discrepancy? Is it low paying jobs, lack of housing stock, both or something else? And what are some strong town solutions for this problem. We don't talk about individual income very often in Strong Towns because we're really focused on the built environment. But Chuck, I'm curious if you have some thoughts on where the mismatch is happening between people's paychecks and what they need to pay to the landlord. I, I feel like we could talk about this issue for hours and hours and not get to the problem because I, I, actually, don't, I, I actually don't feel like this is one where there is like a problem and a solution. Um, the housing market in general is a complex adaptive system. It has emergent behaviors. It, it uh, is not one of these things where if you lower interest rates, you know, X happens. If you raise interest rates, Y happens. If you put in this incentive, this is guaranteed to happen. It, it's, it's not something that even can be, uh, you know, reflected from place to place. It, 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 all these different geographies have different kind of, um, you know, interrelating uh, factors that are causing this. L- let's step back and, and kind of acknowledge that as a general rule, uh, what we are seeing is 
really kind of a divergence of, of two things, both of which are resulting in lack of affordability. In one, what you have is an explosive market and huge demand that is driving up prices for housing beyond what even people who are making a lot of money by American standards can afford. And you can kind of put a pin in a place like San Francisco or Seattle or Portland or, or Austin to some degree. Here you have people who are making way, way, way above the median U.S. family wage, household income, and they still can't afford a place to live. You then have like the other end of the spectrum, which are places where housing values are really low and depressed and, and, and neighborhoods are struggling and things aren't going well, and people there still can't afford them. And they can't afford them as a function of the fact that they're not earning enough money. They don't make enough money. I think that there's very few factors that overlap both of those. Um, in other words, we, 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 we treat them both as unaffordability issues and we often throw like the same set of tools at them. Um, and, you know, in many ways, they're very, very different experiences. Um, I think there's two kind of overlapping things that I would like to point out as a way to think about this. The first one is the concept of just move. Um, and I've, I've been guilty of this. And I think people like Chris Arnotti have, have schooled me a little bit. And my own experience should point this out because where do I live? I live three miles from the Marone homestead from the early 1900s. I mean, I'm not one who has just moved. Um, but there's this idea in economic thought that, you know, in a fluid market, people will move and change and adapt if prices get too expensive. In America, we have this history of, you know, go West, young man. The idea was like, this place isn't well suited for you. Go for better opportunity. Andres Duani said this a few years ago. He's like, why aren't all these millennials who are struggling in San Francisco to make ends meet? Why don't they just move to Detroit? Because Detroit has, you know, you, you, for what you're paying in a month, you could buy a house in Detroit in four months. What you're paying in rent for like one bed in a, you know, overstuffed apartment you could buy a house in four or five months in Detroit. Why don't you just move to Detroit and set up camp there and, and create something out of it? And my gut reaction to that was, yeah, yeah, why don't you just move? You know, just move. And then I look at myself and I'm like, I didn't move. I'm, I'm rooted. Um, what we find in housing markets, and I think this goes, it's like a parallel to Keynes's insight on wages being sticky. I think places are sticky. I think places are sticky with us. And so property markets don't react in the rational ways that we would expect a market for widgets or soda pop or whatever it is to, uh, to react. They're, 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 they're sticky and people have different irrational kind of uh, reactions to them. I think the other thing that I would point out to think about this, and we've talked about this before, the, the gravity effect of interest rates uh, and I'll also just add into that just capital flows in general. If, if you're living in a place like San Francisco, you're not only competing against a whole bunch of other people in the tech sector, sectors that are getting obscene levels of money just thrown at them. And, and we can all understand, you know, when money is sloshing around, there's less of a push to be really prudent with it. I don't think that's like a big stretch. Um, and so what we see is a lot of free spending, a lot of money just flowing for 
bonuses and increased salaries and wages and you see wages going up and you see prices going up and you see this whole marketplace kind of exploding. Um, but you're also competing against foreign money. You know, last yesterday, the stock market had its sixth biggest drop in, in history. Uh, a lot of that is because we're having these pre-trade wars or currency wars with the country of China. Um, if you're a Chinese business person and you've made a good amount of money and you would like to park that money someplace safe, uh, in many ways, a condo unit in San Francisco looks a lot safer than something in your own country, especially when you look at the riots going on in Hong Kong and the threat of like another Tiananmen Square crackdown. Um, you know, China does not have open currency markets. And so you, you see like the ability to move money around. Uh, all of a sudden you have our property markets competing against this currency we put out into the world. Uh, you have very low interest rates here. And so if you're a pension fund trying to drive returns, buying real estate investment trusts and that kind of thing, which is again, pours more and more money into the housing market is a really good investment. How do you tease all this out and say, what's the problem? What's causing this? in the financial sense, we've altered gravity to push lots of capital towards housing. And in the, in the employment side, we've kind of altered gravity to drive down wages and make people more like commodities. And like the result of that is that housing becomes unaffordable. You also just take the fact that our economy went into collapse when housing prices tried to reset in 2008. We quickly propped them back up and we've been doing everything we can to keep them up because there's a big fear that our economy will go into collapse if we allow housing prices to equilibrate at prices people can afford. How do we solve this? I have no idea. Like this is a this is like an intertwined mess. And to me, I feel like the, the, the only thing that we can do at the local level is uh, you know, to try to find an equilibrium point. I, I wrote this article a while back in a series I did on housing in Portland. And one of them was this picture of a hand above water, you know, like this person drowning and you're just trying to find like stable ground to put your feet on. And I suggested that the way we do that is we have to allow our neighborhoods all to evolve incrementally. And the idea where well, it wasn't that this would solve every problem or fix every ill, um, but what it would allow us to do is create a more localized housing market that had the ability to receive primarily local feedback instead of the distorted external feedbacks, and then to adapt locally to that local feedback over time. So that if a person's wages was here, this is what they could afford. Housing didn't like ramp way, way up because of artificial things. Housing prices actually equilibrated with wages at prices that local people could afford. And I, I don't think that's a solution, but to me, it's an approach that gets us more towards a stable marketplace. That was like a, a really, I feel like that was a long answer, but also like a quick answer to what is a brutally complicated problem. It is a brutally complicated problem that we could spend this entire webcast asking, answering, but I thought it would be good to give a teaser in large part because you do talk about it in the book in some degree, Chuck, which I think everyone should check out that book. It's really, really, really interesting, um, especially on this particular topic. And um, I know someday you plan on writing a book specifically about housing. So. I'm, hoping, I'm hoping my colleague Daniel does that with me because he's had yeah. some amazing insights on it as well. So totally. yeah. 
So that was like a 303 level question. Let's go back to 101 because I in the live Q&A happens to have asked what I think is like the million dollar strong tones question that always bears revisiting, which is how do cities calculate their ability to pay for infrastructure maintenance? How do they do it? Is anyone calculating this fundamental factor? If not, how do cities know if they have too much infrastructure right now? And I might add on to Ivan's question, if the infrastructure that they do have is spurring the sort of adjacent development that's going to keep their city financially solvent. Let's just go back to basics real quick. Right. Add something new onto it. It's funny because cities are complex adaptive systems. And, and once you grasp that, you realize that a lot of things that we put calculations to um, over time become nonsensical. Um, but when we actually look at a snapshot of cities and infrastructure maintenance, this is one of the easier ones to do. Um, we can calculate, and by we, uh, I, I mean engineers and others who are good at estimating costs and even a non-technical people, if you want to delve into it and say, just in a very rough sense, a 32 foot wide road, how much does that cost per foot to maintain over time? These are like known numbers you can get from city hall. They're very little bit by region because costs are different by region, but, but you, can, you can calculate these numbers. These are not like unknowable numbers. And then you say, how many miles of that road do we have? Uh, what is, you know, what is that total cost look like? And then you ask yourself some very simple questions of what's our tax base look like? How much revenue does that tax base create? And what percentage of that revenue then goes to the maintenance of these roadways? Um, what we find in general is that uh, cities spend about 15% of their budget on uh, roads, street. A small percentage of that is spent on maintenance. A larger percentage of that is spent on building new stuff. But if we even just look at it like as a total maintenance budget, you can calculate what that is. And, and you can take this at a subdivision by subdivision scale. You can do it at a citywide scale. I find it most helpful to look at different developments individually and say, okay, for this style of development, which we see throughout the city, um, how much road does this take? How much street does this take? What is the cost of maintaining this? And we can sit down and calculate that. And then I'm looking at this tax base, how much revenue does that produce? And it, it really is like a very simple, I mean, I, I say this having had seven quarters of calculus and an engineering degree, and I know what's simple for me, maybe not. I've seen other people struggle with this, but I, I'm telling you, the technical professionals you have on your staff, the people putting together your budget, these are not difficult calculations. These are not hard. Why don't people do them? And I think that there's a, there's a lot of reasons why uh, that are kind of jumbled up and mixed up together, but I'll give you what I think is the most important ones. Um, one, we never have done it. So, you know, like we just, we never asked this question. And then two, um, we've been so focused on growth and new and what we can add that the idea of maintenance has been this kind of long-term thing for someone else to worry about. This is that temporal discounting that we talk about a lot. Uh, humans are wired and, and this gets into like the way your brain is set up. And, and this is, this is a common human flaw that we all share. Humans are wired to highly value positive feedback and positive reinforcement today. 
and to deeply discount. And by discount, I mean not think about, ignore, put off, rationalize future pain and future sacrifice. And so when we are wired this way, the idea that when we put in a new development or a new street and it comes with uh, all this new cash flow, that we would highly value that is just like, that's the way humans are wired. And that we would ignore or just like not bother to calculate or not, you know, consider even the long-term ramifications when they're 20, 30 years away financially. My gosh, that, what you're describing there is a human. Like what you're describing there is how people operate. So I think we can look at this and say, well, cities are just, in, this is just insidious. Why are these people not calculating this? This should be done as a matter of course. Yeah, it should be but we're all flawed. And so we don't. Um, I think the more interesting question, and, and I won't, we can touch on this maybe later, but the more interesting question is why did people in the past do this and we don't today? And the right short answer is they didn't either, but their development pattern uh, didn't have these trade-offs. Our development pattern, our post-World War II development pattern has these trade-offs. When you build horizontally, you create this trade-off in like a hyper sense when you build slow and incrementally over long, long, you know, generations, um, the feedback that you get and the operating system you have that, you know, was developed through iteration doesn't give you, doesn't put you in a position where you have those same trade-offs. Absolutely. Well, I've been thinking about this recently too, which is just, you know, we talk about cities being complex systems all the time, Chuck. And I think that that complexity is sort of a sword that cuts both ways. We think that there's, there's a point at which human beings say, it's not just kicking the can down the, can down the road and saying someone else in the future will pay for it. It's saying, how am I possibly supposed to place a value on a good road network where everyone can get around because that has ripple effects that are like second, third, fourth order that I can never anticipate. I'm an engineer and my job is to build a good road system. Um, so that complexity becomes a justification for all kinds of things that harm us and harm our budgets. It's really challenging. To well, it's, it's very easy on the inside. I mean, as an engineer who worked on many of these projects and, and, many city budgets and, and planning cycles, it's very, very easy to look at this in the short term and rationalize things away. Yeah, we can't do that road this year. We'll get to that next year. We'll, we'll put it on the budget for next year because we have this urgent priority now. And it's, it's not that people don't care or they are, you know, blasé in their duties. They, they, they are out for themselves. No, they're just human. You know, I mean, that's, Think about the, the roof on your house or the, your siding or the sidewalk cracked in front of your place. I mean, we, we all have these things that are like trade-offs um, that we make day to day. And, you know, when we work collectively, we act very much the same way. Yeah. Well, thank you for that throwback question, Ivan. I think that was actually really important to revisit because it's at the core of everything we're talking about here. Right of human nature. Uh, let's go to another one that we've talked about in, a, in different ways here and there, but I really like to revisit it. Casey says, I live in Howard County, Maryland. Shout out to Howard County. I live with someone from Ellicott City originally. Um, as I've become more and more aware of the situation here, the county has been using county bonds to pay for major projects from chasing development to basic infrastructure. As a wealthy county, I was surprised to discover how reliant on this financing the government actually is. Is it on 
unfair to look at bonds as unequivocally bad for building a strong town. What do we think about bonds? Let's yeah, it's, it's astounding because um, you, you would think that like rich places, um, and we'll, we'll just pick on Carmel for a minute, um, Carmel, Indiana. The, <laughs> the, well, the, the, I've called them the Enron of, um, of <laughs> municipalities. You know, it, it's, you, would, you would think that like a very rich city wouldn't have a ton of debt because they're very rich, right? Like you look and the median household income is very high. Property values are very high. Everything, you know, tax rates are, are relatively high. You look and you're like, this is a very affluent place. And then you just scratch the surface. and You're like, oh my God, they're just loaded down with debt. How is this possible? And it's a little bit like how, um, you know, the United States has this massive amount of public debt, both in dollar terms and in, you know, uh, debt to GDP ratio terms, when a, a very small, poor country would never be allowed to get that far in debt. Debt is a lot about um, confidence. And if you're very, very rich, I have a lot of confidence that you'll find a way to pay me back. And if you're very poor, I have less confidence. So I'm going to be less willing to loan to you. And the irony of that is that what we see is that a lot of debt problems, particularly the kind that become catastrophic, uh, are often come from the wealthiest, most affluent parts of our society, be they people or businesses, uh, or in this case, municipalities. Um, I, I don't, I, I, at times, Strong Towns has been uh, labeled as like categorically against debt and against bonding. And that is very much not true. I think there are very good cash flow reasons why bonding makes sense. Um, the problem is if you're not super disciplined about calculating your costs and calculating your revenues and finding the balance between them, it's very easy to confuse your insolvency for just a cash flow problem. Um, boy, I'm out of money. I've got these five projects I need to do. Uh, here's the loan shark who's saying, you know, they'll loan me the money and I can do this today. And then I don't have to raise taxes and I don't have to go back to the people and explain all this. And we can just keep the same budget, but apply that to payments. And you can see how, like, if you're not really disciplined about this, the debt becomes really a very seductive way to solve your problems. And we see over time places become like New Jersey today. Uh, where every single dollar of gas tax they collect goes to pay debt on prior, prior projects. In, in Texas, uh, it's something like 70% or 80% of every dollar in gas tax they collect, instead of going to pay for projects, the way that the gas tax was originally set up in those states, they've borrowed so much money and promised their revenue to repaying that debt that now all their revenue goes to debt service. Um, and they still have a backlog. I think that if I lived in Howard County, I would be very concerned about the way the county is approaching debt and the discipline that they're using to discern what a good investment or not is. Um, and I, I would want to see a lot more math and a lot more rigor behind the, the cash flow and the return on investments so we weren't just using debt to put off hard questions. Whew, published that in the Capital Gazette, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. 
I forget the Ellicott City's newspaper. Um, well, that's a really, really good answer, and I appreciate the, the nuance of it, Chuck. Let's go to another one from the pre-submitted questions that I'm just curious about. Um, Monica from Lundington, Michigan, which even as a Michigander I'm not familiar with, says, I live in a lakeshore community where almost 40% of our homes are second homes, and we're now also considering allowing short-term vacation rentals in our downtown residential areas. My question is, how do vacation homes and vacation rentals impact our cities compared to year-round residencies? Are second homes, vacation rentals a strong way for communities to grow? Um, is that something that Strong Towns has a thought on? It's very interesting because I, you know, live in a, a kind of a vacation area as well. The Brainerd Lakes area is, uh, you know, two plus hours north of Minneapolis-St. Paul, and we're inundated every weekend with people coming up to their lake cabins and the resorts and that kind of thing. Um, I, I think the very short answer is that there's no reason why this would be either good or bad for a local economy. Um, I think on the good side, you're bringing in capital. Uh, so you're bringing in outside capital in your community, and that's a good thing. On the bad side, you have more, uh, I, I think, we can look at it as like the money flows. Um, you know, our, my community has struggled with people from the Twin Cities coming up and bidding up prices mm -hmm. and people who used to be able to own homes now can't or have, you know, much different quality of life because they're competing with this broader market of, of capital flow. I, I think though the, the most important thing in this conversation and whether this is good or bad is what is your local economic ecosystem looks like? If people are coming to your tourist area and they're buying homes and they're eating at local businesses and they're shopping at places where the capital stays locally and gets passed around the community, if like in our area, they pay their property taxes and that supports the schools and the roads and the things that they don't use for nine months out of the year, but they're paying for 12 months out of the year, um, there's a lot of benefits to that. And if you've created a local economic ecosystem that captures that wealth and passes it around a lot uh, before it leaves and exits the community, uh, those tourist dollars are fantastic. If on the other hand, people are coming up and they're stopping at uh, the Target or the Walmart to get their supplies on the way through, because you've made the big box stores all convenient to go through. They drive through the McDonald's drive-through or the Taco Bell drive-through on their way out of town. Uh, they're going to, you know, all the like same franchises that you've got down where they came from. They're just swinging through them up here and they don't interact with your local ecosystem. Well, now that money's not doing you anything at all. I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 it really is a huge missed opportunity. And sure, you can have the local franchisee for the Wendy's or whatever say, I really you know, value this. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a one-point transaction, not a, an ecosystem where that money gets sloshed around and goes through multiple hands and, 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 and really grows the local community. So I, I would rephrase the question and say, instead of it being about are these good or bad? Have you created the economy around this type of capital inflow to capture it and maximize it and have it be a real benefit for your area? I think that's really well said. And it actually um, 
leads to a follow-up question that we got on the live questions that I'm hoping I can put together. Scott Adams in Asheville is dealing with sort of a similar problem in that he's in a city which is considering putting a moratorium on hotel constructions, flip side of the coin, they wanna shut it down. They're already regulating short-term rentals um, and visitor tourist demand is constant. You and I were out in Asheville trying to get an Airbnb and we had to go out of town in order to find one that would accommodate our staff. Um, so from a market-based, supply-based perspective, would it be more effective for the city to focus on zoning slash development regulations that would foster more housing supply versus restricting hotels and short-term rentals, which are in high demand? Um, or would it make sense to go ahead and let the moratorium stand and try to keep you know, only locals in Asheville. I think this is sort of the flip side to Monica's question about, you know, are these things good or bad? How do we encourage a broad swath of development that's going to keep money in our communities, whether it's coming from visitor dollars or dollars at home? And this is about how do we keep people in our communities while also making sure that there's some room for tourists, especially in a community like Asheville, which is encircled by mountains. <laughs> right, right. Um can I take this in a really weird place? Yes, please. So, I'm a, so I had this uh, ecology class when I was in graduate school. And one of the things that was fascinating to me, because I'd never thought about it in this way, is the relationship between foxes and rabbits. Is the plural of fox foxes? Is that right? Yeah. You, okay, so I said that right. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that was like a Minnesotanism or something. So it's I'm good. Most, so. Okay. Which I know so, you're familiar with in your neck of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is that there's actually a seven-year cycle where at the peak of the seven years, you will see a lot of rabbits and not many fox. And so if you think about this from the perspective of a fox, there's like a lot to eat now. And so you will eat a lot of rabbit. Rabbits are easy to get because they're everywhere. Uh, you'll feast on rabbit. You'll have lots of offspring. You'll be lots of little foxes running around. But then all of a sudden, there's too many foxes. And at the other peak of the seven-year cycle, there's way more foxes and not enough rabbits. And what you find then is that foxes' mating habits slow down. Uh, some fox die from, you know, whatever. They're, they're malnourished. They're not as healthy. And the fox numbers decline. And when the fox numbers decline, what happens to the rabbits? It's easier to reproduce and not as many of you are getting killed. So, the rabbits, so it's, it's like a seven-year cycle where they go back and forth. The reason I brought this up is because I was reading this thing about hotels and they were talking about uh, hotel units and basically the hotel industry. And the way that it was described in these financial journals uh, was very much reminded me of the rabbits and the fox. Um, you'll get demand. Uh, they'll go out and build up a whole bunch of hotel units. Uh, the hotel units will basically like overshoot the demand um, the hotels will then struggle to find people. They'll lower prices. They'll have to go through like a cycle of, of pulling back. Some of them will maybe even get taken off the market and turned into housing units or long-term rentals or apartments or what have you. And, and then there becomes a shortage and then it starts over again. And the term was longer. It wasn't a seven-year cycle. It was something like a 15 or a 20-year cycle. Um, but it was, it was a very clear, like they demonstrated all these different markets how this takes place. I don't understand what the rationale would be in Asheville for having a moratorium on hotel units. Mm. Um, because, and, and I'm going to try to, I mean, maybe you know what it is. I don't know. Is it the idea that if we build fewer hotel units, there will be fewer people who want to come and visit Asheville? 
Yeah, that's where I get a little hung up too, because it's like, is is the idea that like you don't want as many tourists in your town so that they get interested to like move into Apple and then just place people who have been there longer? Like, is that the chain of thinking? I, I'm also having trouble sort of connecting the dots. Yeah, I, I, I've struggled with that because I, I, I mean, when we went last time, mm-hmm. we, we got an Airbnb, but we got an Airbnb like up in the mountains yeah. uh, somewhere and did our staff retreat. And then we drove in and went out to eat and drove in and went out to the movies. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think if you did this just like no hotels in Asheville, I don't think that you would suddenly quash or equilibrate the, uh, the tourism industry at like a lower level. Um, you would just take the few units that there are in Asheville and really, really ramp them up in price. You know, whatever you were trying to do from an affordability standpoint, it seemed to me like you would get the opposite result. Um, Again, I, I feel like this is another one of those instances where the Asheville property market has been kind of uh, distorted because of the pattern they've chosen to grow in. Uh, you see basically neighborhoods suppressed. So no change, no thickening up, can't do anything here. And then over here, you can like do explosive growth. And what the net result of that is, is in the places that are suppressed, the prices rise incredibly. And everyone buying into that is buying into an ecosystem that is static and not going to evolve. So that's like the bargain that they sign up for. So they resist change and they, you know, keep it static. And then the neighborhoods where the, the development pressure overwhelms, you get this like explosive level of growth where it transforms it, you know, seemingly overnight from something that locals could relate to and live within and find a place in to now something that's built for somebody else and not for me, not at price points for me, not in a character for me, not for me. And I go back to the, the, the thing I said earlier, which is every neighborhood needs to be able to evolve and adapt and change and thicken up. All those single family home neighborhoods that are off limits today in Asheville need to be allowed to add accessory apartments, yeah. convert into a duplex, slowly evolve and change. So those neighborhoods thicken up, become financially more productive, put more units on, are allowed to uh, you know, meet supply and demand at local price points. Mm-hmm. Um, and the neighborhoods where they're seeing explosive growth, I would not want that explosive growth to happen. I would say those neighborhoods also need to evolve and change incrementally. I think the counter argument is, is that Asheville has suppressed things so long that there's a lot of catch up to do. Um, I'm sympathetic to that, but I still think that in the long run, embracing that incremental thickening up uh, would, would solve a lot of the character issues that I think these things are trying to solve. And also a lot of the, the, the price issues. I totally agree. Thicken up, Asheville. Thicken <laughs> like up. That's one of our bumper sticker slogans. Um, let's go to a question from Mayor Hal McCabe. He, I, I love when mayors <laughs> pop on here and he actually gave his title. So Sweet. If, you're, if you're asking a question and you're the mayor of something, you can let us know. We think that's cool. <laughs> All right. Um, mayor one asks, uh, mayor Hal asks, do we have any thoughts on municipal owned endeavors designed primarily to produce revenue? For example, owning rec facilities and having it managed and run by an outside company, ditto the concessions. I might add on this, like, 
your airport in your city, your um, other park facilities. What do we think about that at Strong Towns? I don't know if the subtext of that is meant to be, is it a substitute for other productive infrastructure? But tell me your initial reaction. It's, it's a very interesting question. Um, and let me give you one of my favorite ones to, to deal with, and that is like municipal golf courses. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, there's an idea that, uh, well, you know, we want to have this recreational opportunity for people. So the municipality is going to run a golf course and um, they always project how it's going to be a huge moneymaker. And then, you know, most of the times it, it ultimately isn't. And I, I think with any of these things, you have to ask yourself, um, why is the market not providing this? Now, sometimes the market isn't providing it because it financially is a loser. And, and let's, let's set that one off to the side for a sec. Sometimes the market's not providing it because there's too much risk involved. Um, it's not clear that this will pay off. Uh, sometimes it's, um, you know, you, you've got fear of competition. Uh, th there are instances, I think, where cities can undertake things a concession stand is a good example. Yeah. Um, we've got a ballpark. We're going to have, you know, some food trucks or concessions come in. They're going to, we're going to generate revenue from that and we're going to take some of the profit. Th those types of relationships are fantastic. Those are great. Um, and if you can kind of, you know, I think in a local government standpoint, uh, you know, take some of the risk out of that by saying, you know, we will coordinate our ball games to match with when you're in town or we'll coordinate our, you know, whatever. Um, you know, you, you, you can make some of those relationships work and work really well. I, I think the problem comes in when we're going to run the municipal golf course or we're going to run the municipal concession stand or we're going to build the rec facility and it will cash flow itself and then it doesn't. What, what do you do at that point? Because in the private sector, what happens is that that goes out of business and people lose a lot of money. The bank loses money. Whoever was the investor in that loses money. And then it gets resold into the marketplace. It either is transformed into something else or it begins to operate without the debt and without the, the debt overhang so it can run profitably. Basically, the, the marketplace is a way of working those things out where people experience some pain because it was a failure. When governments are running it, um, we tend to do everything we can to avoid that failure. And we also kind of associate the failure of the place to be cash flow positive with like our own leadership or personal failure. Um, you know, like, well, we can't close that rec center because Mayor Hal uh, pushed that project through and then we'd have to admit it was a huge boondoggle and uh, boy, we can't do that. Do so, that <laughs> right, right. So you, you have, you know, basically irrational human thoughts start to enter, which should be like, in a sense, like a hard, cold mathematical equation. Um, let me say this categorically. Uh, uh, when we look at cities running like utilities, we run sewer water systems, we run a drainage utility, we run a street utility. Um, these are, in a sense, businesses that we're running. A util you know, your electric utility, the electric company is a private business. Your waterworks is a water business that's like a subsidiary within the city. When we run those businesses, 
they need to run at a profit. They actually need to generate more revenue year to year than they generate expenses. Now, different than the private sector, the public sector is not necessarily out to maximize profit. It's not out to maximize profit at the expense of like residents. Like, oh, if we can charge that grandma an extra two bucks a month, uh, we're going to do that because then we can pay ourselves larger bonuses. You have to run a profit because you have to stay in business and you have to provide this utility to people. Exactly. When, when we get into things like concessions and rec facilities, you also have to run a profit. But if you don't, the problem becomes uh, a lot different. Because when your water system is not running a profit, that's like an urgent thing because people have to have water. And you're going to have to figure out what about your system is not working. When your rec center is not running a profit, it very likely is that your community should not have that rec center. And I think that that becomes like the harder conversation. Um, I would like to see cities shop a lot more risk out to the private sector. Yeah. Uh, we seem reluctant to do that today. Um, you know, I, I think the idea of, you know, the city would like a rec center here. We all kind of agree that that's a good thing. Let's find a private operator who would like to sign a 10-year contract with us to run it. And they'll pay us a certain amount each year and then they'll run it. Um, we're loath to do that because when we build these things, we want them to be more than just a rec center. We want them to be a, a social thing that will, you know, <laughs> give people the golf course they always dreamed or the, you know, neighborhood community center for nonprofits to meet. Th those might all be great social gains, but when you mix them with this thing and you try to pretend that it's a profit entity, you're, you're trying to do more things than you should. You know, that make, does that make sense? It does. And, you know, I keep thinking about the great national experiment we all witnessed with uh, bike share over the last couple of years, which I think is a great example of cities like taking the risk and saying, you take it, line bike, and look what happened with a lot of those companies. Um, is it a strong, you know, do we have more bike share gains in a lot of communities than we would have had had we like all created our city branded bike share and invested hundreds of millions of dollars into it. I don't know, but at least we got some like on the ground data from these private companies that we can use when we do take the plunge into a public investment. And since bikes are my wheelhouse, that's where mine goes right away. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I feel like cities, this is, this is like my general philosophy on on government. And I, I, I granted, I have, um, I, I think these are things where like decent people can disagree. So I, I'm going to say this and then understand that I'm not an absolutist here, but to me, government should do particularly city government, uh, should do what they do in a limited sense and very competently, you know, like let's, let's do what we do and do it really, really well. And then where there's gaps in what needs to be done, if we're not good at it, like if we can't do this competently, which means running a profit, so it's financially viable and so it works, then I think the next step is who can we find that can help us do this profitably? And what would it take for, you know, what, what would our partnership in that look like? And so I'm all for like a collaboration with, with the private sector. I, I think it's fantastic. I just think um, as cities, uh, we, we need to be, we need to be cognizant of our math 
and then cognizant also of our like irrational reactions to things and treat them more like especially things like concession stands and rec facilities like hard cold business decisions and not some like you know deeply cultural thing that we're trying to accomplish yeah that's a challenging balance it's a challenging balance yeah we can get some other questions in here about when those private public partnerships go a little more towards the benefits of the private sector more than it should and most most private public partnerships today like when we use that term is basically the private sector takes the risk i'm sorry the public sector takes the risk and backstops the the whole thing and then the private sector winds up getting the gains uh, for the most part, with a little bit shoveled back to the public sector, if they're lucky. And I, I feel like most public-private partnerships, the way that I've seen them, are really very poorly structured for the city, the public entity. And I, I don't feel like that's a byproduct of public-private partnerships being de facto bad. I think it's more of a byproduct of our desperation at the local level for growth and for revenue. And so we're willing to sign bad deals because we're so desperate. Yeah. Does that, does that make more sense? Yeah, that's it in a very nice nutshell. And I want to get us away from saying public-private partnerships for a little while because it's turning into a tongue twister. So let's go to, you know, like Peter Piper picked it up. Right. Um, let's go to another question here from Tom Hawkins. Um, this is just kind of a nice one for people to know. I'm on the local city council. How do we get Charles, Chuck? I don't know who Charles is now. Yeah. Um, to visit our community to assess how we can become a strong town city and educate our city officials on the benefits. I think there are some things underneath that question that new folks probably should know about how we actually do visits with city councils and the way that we use events within the strong towns model. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then I can give some actual practical resources in the chat and uh, about how to make a visit happen. Well, first, my friends call me Chuck, right? It's one of those things where like my God-given name is Charles. It's actually Charles Jr. My dad is is Charles as well. Um, But I kind of know right away like my friends, like if if we're friends, uh, people call me Chuck. And so like, go ahead and call me Chuck. Like if you, people who listen to the podcast or watch these videos or hang out with us here at Strong Towns, um, when they call me Chuck, I'm like, oh, okay, this is someone who listens (laughs) because- uh, because we know we're, we're friends here, um, so feel free. Uh, yeah. Charles is my name and I like it, but Chuck is what my friends call me, so feel cool to do that. <laughs> um, I, I, I think I know where you're going with this, Kia. I want you to elaborate on this too because you're like deeply involved. Let me give like a big picture thing. Um, I come from a consulting background. So in the 90s, I worked as an engineer for, a, uh, I worked for the DOT for a little bit and then I did private consulting. Um, I went back to grad school in 2000 and started my own planning firm and did planning engineering work as a consultant for cities all over. Um, the accidental story of how I started Strong Towns is, uh, is interesting. I'll spare you that, but just say like in the early years of Strong Towns, I did not know, and, and we, uh, the board, everybody who was involved in this, uh, didn't know what we would do, but it was very natural for us to be consultants because that was what my background was. I mean, if we were gonna pay our bills and be around, we go back to the rec center and concession stand, you know, we have to pay our bills. Uh, how do we do that? Well, I knew how to go help people 
and have them compensate me or the organization for, for that time. Um, as we continued to grow, and this is like 2012, 2013, 2014, um, what we found is that every time we would, as an organization, stop and do consulting work, all the momentum of what we were doing would stall. And every time we focused on the media side of what we did, sharing our message, getting it out there in different unique ways, talking about Strongtown's ideas and concepts, um, what we saw is that not only did our movement accelerate, but we were starting to see like real change on the ground. People would take our ideas, they would take our thoughts, they would take our work, they would share it with other people, they would talk with other people about it, they would come up with their own kind of localized approach and strategy, and they would uh, go out and do it. Um, we were seeing amazing things happen from the media side of what we did and, and very, very poor returns, except financially, <laughs> from the consulting side. So we made a really, um, I think it was probably the most important decision we made at Strong Towns uh, from an a, a organization standpoint uh, was in 2015 when we decided we are no longer going to do any consulting. And I remember sitting around the table looking at this going, how are we going to pay <laughs> you know, like, how are we going to pay for anything? And we had this membership model and we had this event model and we said, we're going to align the future of this organization with the success of our message. And so right now we do three things. We do uh, prepare content, um, this engagement right here, uh, all the stuff we do daily on our website, um, all of our micro content, all our social feeds. We prepare content. We distribute that content. So we, we get it out in front of people. We go do events. Um, we are planning a whole uh, tour this fall. Um, so to go out and meet with people and share our content and have these conversations. And then through those things, we nudge people to take action. Um, so we try to structure our content and our conversations so that we create some kinetic uh, energy on the ground for people to take action and make change. Um, with that, I'm going to let you, Kia, talk a little bit about the, maybe the specifics of going to a place and educating people, because uh, it's a big part of what you're working on right now. Oh, it sure is. So I'm working on right now the Strong America Tour, which we mentioned Chuck's book a couple of times. That is not just me putting in a plug. I'm actually thinking about the book right now and some things in it, and it's on my mind. So that's why it keeps popping out of my mouth. But um, what I'm a big fan of what my colleague Michelle, who's our events pathfinder, who totally rocks, um, likes to say to communities, which is that um, a Strong Towns event really softens the ground for you to make yourself into a Strong Town city. Um, we have, I think as an organization, we at Strong Towns are really skeptical of the kind of effect that we see consulting have in other communities, frankly, where they can say, we asked a consultant, we tried it, it didn't work, and then they move on to the next thing. It becomes sort of a stamp of you know, we gave it a shot, we implemented the program, oh well. What we want to do is something more powerful. We want to change your culture. We want to change the way that not just your city council people, but also, by the way, your neighbors, um, your, your janitor who lives on your street, your mom pushing the stroller down your block, are thinking about the way their town is built. Because until our message takes root at the level of culture, nothing that you're going to do in council chambers is really going to make a lasting difference. 
difference. It might make a policy difference in the short term. It certainly has an impact that we care about. Um, but when we come to an event, usually we're doing it for um, a broader group of people. Sometimes we will meet in private with a council so that we can kind of put things in that language. I think one of the things you're most talented at, Chuck, is you can kind of talk to both groups. You can talk to government official and you can talk to people like me who have never and will never hold a seat on local government. Mark my words. Um, but I, I think that if you're interested in pursuing a Strong Towns event, you should think of it as an opportunity to um, start a really powerful revolution in your place. I really do. Um, so to start that revolution, you would go to strongtowns.org slash speaking. Um, you can get information on all of our offerings with Chuck and with all kinds of other speakers at Strong Towns as well. We've got John Reuter, our board member, um, who is one of my favorite speakers in the world. We've got Daniel Harrigus, our soon to be retitled senior editor, who is um, a planner by background and a really brilliant guy with some really unique things to say specifically about how but also on other topics. Um, every once in a while, other members of the team like me will do something for you. So um, visit strongtowns.org slash speaking. If you're interested in the tour, strongtowns.org slash strong America to hear us talk about the book specifically um, and about the messages in the book and what they can mean for your community. So those are the resources to start. I'll type them in chat here, but if you're listening to the podcast version of this later on down the line, those are the good places to get yourself going. I think your I, 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 I think your answer was perfect. Um, I want to emphasize the one thing about the the consulting. Um, I, I, one of the things that I have come to recognize is the more I'm called an expert, uh, the less comfortable I am <laughs> that I actually know the answer. Um, I mean, I I love going to places and I love meeting new people and and looking at a city with new eyes. Um, when I walk around with people, we do a lot of walking tours. Um, we do a lot of, you know, at these events, just, just chatting with people. I, I am able to impart some things that maybe people aren't looking at, you know, in a, in a place. Um, but I, I think the idea of bringing in someone from the outside to come in and tell you how you should do things uh, is very much overrated. Um, ideas, yes. And I think new ways of thinking about things, yes. And as a conversation starter and as a catalyst, absolutely. Yeah. But I think the idea that um, someone like me knows more about you and your community and the needs and the urgent priorities than you do, um, it's just like a, it's a, it's a fundamental flaw of you know, modernity. It's, I, I think it's a byproduct of this hyper-specialization that we've gotten ourselves into. Um, I go back to the, the four-step approach we have to capital improvements. Um, go out and observe where people struggle. Ask yourself, what's the next smallest thing that could be done to address this struggle? Go do that thing, do it right now, and then repeat. Um, th there, th you know, there's no amount of outside knowledge or expertise needed to do the most urgent, most productive things that our cities need today. And so if I had one bit of advice for people, you know, I, I would love to come and help, as Michelle says, soften the ground and help you catalyze a, a different conversation, help get people motivated and thinking about things differently, maybe give you a little bit more room to broaden the conversation in your community. But at the end of the day, this is all about 
local leaders, like, like a local mayor saying, uh, we're just going to, we're, we're, we're going to do things differently here. And we have, in that sense, you have all the tools you need. You have everything you need, everything. The full strong towns organization to help you do it too. You don't even have to be able to afford our speakers. On yeah, our no, that's true. So, yeah. Good stuff. Well, those are all of our live questions. So I think we should call it a day folks. Thank you so much for tuning into ask strong towns. You'll be able to get the audio version of this on our podcast sometime soon and if you want to help us produce a few more of these you can visit strongtowns.org slash membership to uh help us change the way cities and towns are built across north america thanks so much keep doing what you can to build strong towns thanks everybody Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.